Welcome to Making It Happen, a career in the performing arts where we discuss how to break into the performing arts industry for yourself or your child, teen or young adult. Guests include professionals who are passionate and share my vision of helping talented individuals land professional representation and have successful careers in the arts. My name is Lisa Solek and I am the CEO and founder of Making It Happen, a career in the performing arts, having helped hundreds of clients break into the performing arts business on stage, in films, television, commercial work and more. This podcast is supplemental to my groundbreaking online courses. For more information, check all the ways that you can benefit from my courses, my how-to videos, my live seminars, my free weekly newsletter, and free guides. Go to lbctalent.thinkific.com. My guest today is Cameron Richardson. Hi, Cameron. How Hi. are you? I'm grand. How are you? <laughs> I'm so good. I'm so thrilled that you're able to be on the podcast. You have no idea. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, um, yeah. So I, I looked at your resume and I looked at your bio on your website right before we got on the call, just because I wanted to review it, even though we've known each other for a long time and I'm very aware of all of it, but just to go through it and review it, and really, it it's kind of an incredible resume for, especially your age. You're so young you know, in this process and how far you've come in such a, in such a short amount of time, which is really, really interesting. And it actually speaks to your, you know, your hard work and your grit and your talent and all of that. But to start off, I would love to know when you first realized you had talent for music, like when did that happen? Was it when you were super young? Like, were you, you know, toddling around singing songs? Like, Give us a little bit of that background. Um, so my father was an organist, uh, sadly not with us anymore, but he uh, and he was a self-trained organist. And um, I think had he been born into a little bit more of a kind of um, uh, a slightly more privileged background, he would have been trained. But he taught himself to play the organ for theatres and cinemas. You know, you know, like um, when you go to Radio City and there's the two organ consoles. on. Oh, OK. That's the kind of play. very cool. And so um, when I was very young, uh, we have pictures where I would like sit on his knee while he was playing and that kind of stuff. And then he would always sing when I was going to bed. And then about three. Yeah, it was three. It was three. Um, I they I asked if I could learn to play the guitar um, and they took me to the music shop, which had guitar lessons in a little room upstairs. And they say it's far too young, far too young. Um, uh, but somehow they were convinced that they would give me half an hour and actually took to it quite well. So they did let me have lessons at three, uh, which was great. Turned out not to be <clears throat> the instrument that I was probably kind of most readily suited to. Um, but that was kind of where it started. And then um, a little bit older in primary school, uh, or I should say elementary school, <laughs> um, I joined the school choir. That was partly because it meant that you could um, get out of PE lessons, sports lessons, um, and they did they did lots <laughs> of other kind of cool activities. So um, so that happened, and then I joined the um, uh, like local church choir. Um, but alongside that, I'd asked if I could learn to play the piano. Um, also at primary school, we had our lessons in the school library, and so that was probably from around six. Um, which sounds relatively early in classical piano terms. It's not early at all. Um, it's sort of on the later side of things uh, for piano, piano and violin especially. Um, so I grew up doing piano and singing and then got a little bit older and joined the National Youth Choir, um, which you used to do, I think it was two separate residential courses every year. Um, and um, then when I was 16, I joined the junior department of the Royal Academy of Music. So that's like their Saturday school, a bit like the uh, Juilliard pre-college. Mm -hmm. uh, I lived up north, um, still do. So uh, it's quite a long drive. So, or, or train ride really. It's a long drive to the train and then a long train ride. So we used to leave about 4.30, 4, 4.30 in the morning to get there for about nine. Um, and then sort of home around 11, 12. And who was your who was your support system in that space? Like, was it yeah. mostly your mostly your mom, mostly your dad, both of them? Oh, completely equal, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. And I I always felt that like if if it had been something else, they would have been very supportive of whatever that had been. Um, 
I do remember once mum saying like the first time you ever complain about having to get up at four for this train will be like the time I say that's it I'm not taking you <laughs> um, but honestly it was the best day of the week uh, by a long way school school was one thing Monday to Friday and then Saturday was where I was with everyone who um, I kind of had a lot in common with yeah like your tribe you felt like you found your tribe in that space yeah. so you, getting up at 4 30 was easy Oh, it was fantastic. It was like the most energy I ever had. I was just ready to get up and um, yeah, stand on the bitterly cold train station platform. And yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. It was kind of surreal in a way because um, I went to a state school. So uh, what you would call a public school, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. In the UK, public school is something very different. Um, and almost everyone else who was around there were, they were mostly Londoners, uh, a few who weren't, but um, had gone to very, very famous schools like Eton and Harrow and those kinds of things. So that in itself was like a real eye opener from, you know, my school was in this tiny little village in the north of England and um, it had fantastic teaching and everything else, but it's a very kind of sheltered environment, which which I think is, is great really. Um, but it was very much like kind of two competing worlds or two like um, alternate existences in a way. Um, and that's kind of how I started really from, from very, very, uh, very, very tiny acorns um, and just sort of going up the ranks um mm -hmm. but it's been it's been a journey that really has gone around the houses a lot to end up where i'm at now which is largely at least as an artist working in a more kind of contemporary commercial space but mm -hmm. my entire training was uh, classical completely um mm -hmm. you know I, i'm happy to kind of elaborate more on that if that's if that's useful so you started yeah. really young i guess one of the questions would be did you start performing at that young age, like were there recitals, like where okay. was there a performance component or was it educational up until a certain point? I would say probably until around 10, 10 or 11, probably 10, possibly slightly earlier. The earliest recitals and performances I remember were ones that were hosted by my piano teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and then twice a year in our little town, there was uh, uh, what, what are called here music festivals. They're like competitions and they go basically for a week and there's lots of different classes you enter and usually like nine or ten people per class and they get this adjudicator in and you'd perform your pieces and then get your um certificates and prizes and so i did those every year there's one in the summer and then one in the winter um and they're like my earliest performing memories um mm -hmm. and incredibly important really 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 important um for like your own kind of peer analysis and for kind of focusing your own energies on, um, you know, having things to work on and getting feedback from this like almighty adjudicator who's like had 50 years of professional experience and all this kind of stuff. It was, uh, that, that stuff was really exciting. Um, Did that keep the fire lit for the educational piece of it or for you, was it equated? I'm gonna talk very specifically about the piano for one second, cause that's what I was focused on. Um, <laughs> I think going into it for the sake of the performance is um, sometimes a little bit of a hiding to nothing. You kind of have to love the the work of it um, and you have to love doing it for the sake of doing it. And any recognition that comes from that is wonderful. Um, but but the point of it is that you're sharing an experience with people. And that, that's kind of when my like I used to get quite nervous, which is very normal. And then suddenly I had this kind of shift in my head of like, actually, this is a huge privilege to to congregate in a room with people and sh like create and kind of curate this experience. It's not really about me whatsoever. It, it's nothing to do with me, actually. All I'm there to do is kind of give voice to the work that someone else has written. And that's not the same for every single performance environment, but as, as a pianist, it absolutely is. So the joy was in like discovering the work. Um, there was a little bit of like teenage boy testosterone. I want to learn the hardest stuff I can, you know, and the fastest pieces ever and all of this. And, and everyone kind of has that and that's great too. Um, uh, but I loved practicing. So during those times where I was going down to London every week, during the week I'd start my piano practice at um, around six, in the morning till about 7.30 and then go to school and then come back and do at least another four hours in the evenings um, because it's just it, there's just something so uh, life-giving about it and this kind of 
sense of achievement and having like done something tangible and going back the next week and saying, I've learned the next 50 bars of this sonata or anything like that. It's just um, the work, the work is the thing that is the, is the mm -hmm. fun part of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, where I, do you, where do you think you got that drive? Do you think it was just God given, you know, or do you think it was, it came from your upbringing? I mean, it had, it had to be there uh both genetically and you know it's it, it the, that's a huge question right is it genetics or is it the environment the, you know that old old adage like what is it because i have found from interviewing so many people that many of the ones that have been successful have found that they had the talent very early as well between like three and six they're in that space and doing things and it's unusual compared to other children who don't have that affinity, which is the same, whether I would assume it's a baseball player or a soccer player or, you know, a dancer, it's, I'm finding it across the board. So what, what do you think? Maybe it's a combination. Maybe it's a combination of the innate talent along with the grit and the work ethic and the drive like where did that come from was that there or was it your parents teachers I, well th th there's a few kind of strands to that question I, firstly i think innate talent is a very very small percentage of what constitutes success very very small if not negligible um some some people have fantastic voices some people learn how to have a fantastic voice um and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have an enormous impact on their success unless they unless they garner a huge amount of attention at four years old for singing in the church and it's unbelievable and no one knows why but mm -hmm. i i have students who came in who really couldn't sing the same note as the piano and within 18 months or two years were on broadway and it's literally because they worked harder than anyone else have ever ever known um and and uh, and it's like put, putting yourself in that environment where you're with the right people who know how to do that work and who know what your expectations are and how to kind of get that out of you. That that's more of a luck than anything because you can you could spend twenty years with a teacher who thought you were tone deaf and then spend a year with someone who didn't and who had like visions for you. So that's really luck about finding the right person for you. Um, in my personal circumstance. Um, I think it was a combination of the two. Uh, my mum's not musical at all. Um, uh, I, ta I take after my father in that way. And in terms of work ethic, probably as well. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I just enjoyed doing it, I suppose. And I, I've always been a worker. I, I love working and um, learning and still do. Um, mm -hmm. Always looking for something to learn or like the next way to kind of improve or the next place to kind of grow. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think it's probably a combination of both of those things, but mm -hmm. I know for certain, I know absolutely for certain that had I not done the work, I wouldn't have got there. Like, cause I had some talent and I had some ability, but knew that, and, and, and was almost frustrated by the fact that I felt even, even as a young age, I knew that my teacher wasn't getting out of me what I wanted to be kind of doing. And when I had gone into these other places and uh, or traveled a bit further afield and seen other pianists or other singers and how their teachers worked with them and that kind of stuff, I was like, okay, so, it, you know, I love what I'm doing, but clearly, like, I, it needs to be channeled somehow. And it, it's one thing to kind of enjoy it, but it's um, another thing to enjoy it and also have a structure and a pathway to follow. Um, and uh, And so it was sort of my mission to kind of decipher that path for myself which is how I ended up going down to the junior academy that was where I knew I needed to be to get what I needed you know for my yeah to have that insight as a child though is is yeah. very telling also right because I was the same way I have a lot of I have a lot of clients who are the same way who found that they were seeking upper level talent people who are in the industry people who had the had the ability to give them what they needed so they could move forward and get to where they wanted to go. Exactly same story. It's interesting. So let's jump to high school, 
choices in regard to higher education because I feel like you have so many different degrees and certificates. <laughs> I don't know. It would take the whole it would take the whole podcast to list them all. Um, <laughs> you got anyone listening? You can look him up and um, and and find find all this information. But you know, maybe the choices because as a parent, you look at a talented kid. You look at a child who has. Um, has the work ethic and the grit and wants to do it all and is constantly seeking out and constantly practicing what do they do next and what did you do in this in that space and why did you go there why did you end up there did you just happen to end up there or was it a specific choice so are you talking about high schools or you i'm talking about high school college like kind of fill okay. us in in regard to that journey so high school was a, a somewhat of a no-brainer really uh, it was a highly academic school, in, uh, extremely um, highly performing academic state school. Uh, and um, but it's what we call in the UK a grammar school. So you take an exam and then if you get in the something percentile, then you're offered a place in the school. Mm -hmm. uh, and that exam is set by the county and you get into various schools. But um, and then we have something called comprehensive schools, which are not selective. Um, and that was the best school in the area. Uh, and it was still a good hour and a half drive, um, but that was <clears throat> that was easily the best school in the area. And it had a very small music department, like one room, li literally one room and a budget of around 600 pounds, like a thousand dollars for the year. But what it wow. did was unbelievable music teacher, incredible music teacher. Like it, it was just, a, the whole thing was a one man show really um but she was a retired opera singer who sung at covent garden the royal opera house in covent garden she'd also been to the royal academy and was also a very good pianist and had had this career before settling down and having a family and she started teaching at this school um and she, i couldn't have asked for any more support we're still very very good friends we spoke yesterday uh you know however many years later um uh, very very good friends um and I was really lucky for that. And I could have gone to a school which had huge music departments, recording studios, everything else. I have a lot of students who go to those types of schools and they're genuinely no better for it um, because those teachers are either not invested in the students or they're there for their own, mm -hmm. their own reasons. Or uh, yeah. I don't know, it was just a kind of perfect environment for that. But that, that was somewhat um, kind of a happy coincidence, really. It was just... I just, I didn't wildly think too hard about the school I went to. It was just the best school that was kind of available, mm -hmm. uh, but a really good academic school. And then uh, that, that, so that goes up to 18 and my parents were relatively concerned about having um, uh, a, a, like a performance-based degree uh, as my undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I can sort of see why um, it's, it's very hard and it's very unstable um, sometimes. And um, there's no guarantee that you'll make any money from it. And then it's so highly specialized that doing anything else would require retraining again. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a struggle that a lot of parents have, I think, in general. Yeah. I think so. And I don't, I don't think it's entirely unfounded. It's a very hard career. Um, mm -hmm. So what I did, which I think worked really well for me. I did my undergrad at Cambridge University. Um, and even though it was ostensibly a degree in music, so in the UK, we specialize in a degree, you don't do like um, humanities or anything like that, you literally just go to do one subject, there's no kind of general education around it. Um, so my degree was in music, but it's a very, very academic degree. Um, that is almost entirely theoretical. Um, okay there was a little performance element in the last year which was optional but a lot of people went through that degree never really playing apart from interesting having, yeah uh apart from having like they they had to have keyboard skills so they had to be able to harmonize stuff at the keyboard or transpose and that kind of stuff but no performance element at all mm -hmm. um, and it was all theoretical and so even if you didn't want to end up going into music a lot of my friends did that and then did like law conversion courses and things like that and became barristers um and somewhere like cambridge is more about teaching you kind of how far you can push your own brain rather than 
um interesting necessarily how um how in-depth you can become as a musician a lot of people do go and become musicians but it's it's a kind of degree that easily opens a lot of different doors mm -hmm. um, so i did that and i did want to become a musician so after well i did my undergraduate degree and at the same time i was a choral scholar um which is like so cambridge is divided into lots of smaller colleges basically there's a, around 30 of them and i went to a college called trinity college which is um the largest college and it has very famous college choir um and that was the reason i chose that college because it had um a very 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 well respected music director stephen layton and um I would say that most of the stuff I learned about becoming a performing musician was actually done sort of in the chapel because we'd sing even song most days and we toured the world a lot. We did a lot of big recordings um, that won, you know, Grammy nominations, all sorts of things. Um, wow. And uh, like doing that on the daily and a lot of sight reading and a lot of, um, kind of listening really and it, it, there, there was nothing like it for learning through osmosis essentially so so that mm -hmm. was where um I learned a lot of my musicianship skills um so that and you were and wait you were singing you were a vocalist with them okay no piano with them the no piano so it's a it's a church choir essentially a cathedral choir basically mm -hmm. so you go in and sing the daily even song or eucharist and then in the vacations, Cambridge has a lot of long vacations. <laughs> um, we did, <laughs> we did, we did big, big tours um, uh, uh, all all over the world. Um, and yeah, it essentially ran like a professional choir. And we rehearsed every day, and it was that was like that was sort of the main core of my friendship group. And we had all these fantastic dinners together, feast days. Uh, you know, dinner dinner in Cambridge in Trinity is like you. It, it, it's not like a refectory you get, put your suit and your gown on and you're served dinner and that's like the whole evening um and it's just fantastic that sounds wonderful i'm just looking at the list of all the countries that you travel to it's crazy yeah absolutely. austria crazy. belgium canada denmark france germany italy malta new york uh, uh, we went to america many times australia uh, japan hong kong uh, New Zealand, uh, all sorts, all sorts of places. Um, and then before I joined, they went to some, uh, 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 the previous director of music called Richard Marlowe, and he, he took them to some really um, much more obscure places. <laughs> um, but then we, we went for more of the kind of major concert hall, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And, and what kind of music were you, were you singing? What kind of music was, was that all like classical, like what you were describing, or did you do other types of music? It was mostly Anglican choral music, so okay. music that was written for the liturgy. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking of a New York equivalent. If you go to, like, for example, St. Thomas's on Fifth Avenue, on mm -hmm. sure. that's, yeah. that's pretty much the closest thing to, uh, it's the same repertoire. It's no surprise that most of their clergymen are English uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. directors of music. Um, so that's the kind of thing. And then when we went on tour, and did recordings, it would branch out a bit, but the kind of the core repertoire was Anglican cathedral music. Um, yeah. Um, but we did do, we did do some discs of other kind of lighter music. We actually, every year we did a concert on the river. So the C Cambridge is on a river and there's a little river that goes through the center, actually through the college. And every year in the summer, they got like 20, do you know what punts are? They're a bit like gondolas. Uh huh. Like a Cambridge version of a gondola. And they tied them all together and would sit in these gondolas and perform to like two, three thousand people who were sitting on the bank having picnics. That had to be just an awesome, awesome yeah. time in your life to get to do all of that. Yeah, it was really wonderful. Um, fantastic experience. I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. And um, I think the thing about going to those degrees, as I kind of touched upon earlier, it's, it's not so much like the degree. It's like how it kind of makes you... I, like I feel like I could, with with a some amount of training, go and do something else. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like like I founded a business, for example. The and my business partner also studied music and then became a lawyer. Um, and uh, it's and and you know all of your friends like not everyone in the choir was studying music either. There were a lot of mathematicians and scientists and linguists and philosophers. So <laughs> it was a very rounded place in a way, um, highly focused, but also rounded and it, 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 the, the best undergraduate experience 
I could ever have imagined. And then, as you know, later I was at Juilliard and um, <laughs> I, my heart, in a way, it sounds, it's such a weird thing to say, but my heart in a way went out to the undergrads who go to Juilliard because they don't really have any experience. And I think to go from, you know, your high school in Texas or whatever, and then be dumped in the middle of New York with uh, a little dorm room and given this crazy timetable, it's not like you're going there to enjoy the city. And it's not like you, like one of the things I valued most about Cambridge was it was a place where like, it was very sheltered and you could, you could get stuff wrong and you could be out in the middle of the night and within three minutes you would in a room because the city is so small. And, um, and like my professors lived on the same staircase as me and I knew them all so well. And we'd always have drinks together and dinner together. And, um, there's nowhere really like that. Um, I mean, campus universities get closer to that, but um, I, I, yeah, I think there's there's something to be said for kind of coming into the conservatoire life slightly later. That's possibly not the same if you're doing musical theatre and, you know, your goal is to get an agent and to start auditioning for stuff. Possibly not, but if your goal is to be a kind of um, rounded musician or um, someone who's like understands a little bit more of how the world works and how other professions work and those kinds of things, then um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded that. I'm very, mm -hmm. very yeah. yeah, that's really amazing. It sounds awesome. You learned so much, I'm sure, just about the world and yourself and other people and all those general things that you want to learn when you're growing as a human person as well. And then after that, I kind of had this itch that needed scratching in a way that was I wanted to move to the US um, and sort of see how things were done. And so I applied for Fulbright scholarship, which came on as a recommendation from a friend uh, who had previously done one or mm -hmm. knew someone who had done one. She said, why don't you apply for a Fulbright scholarship? So I did and, I, uh, and you have to specify the schools and I applied to Juilliard also to do piano. Um, and so ended up actually doing a second master's degree. <laughs> uh, so I basically, <laughs> I sort of did the same degree twice and Juliet has a rule that you can't do that. So what actually <laughs> happened was I spoke to the academy and I said, so you can't give me a master's because then I can't go and do my master's Juliet. So they rewrote my certificate to say postgraduate certificate um, and gave me a diploma of the Royal Academy of Music. So I have two degrees from the academy, but they're not called <laughs> master's degrees because if I, if, because you couldn't do two because what you wanted to yeah so so i went to juilliard uh and did the the fulbright scholarship which made life mm -hmm. an awful lot easier um mm -hmm. and um that's that's kind of what happened really and as you know i ended up playing for thousands of voice lessons i reckon pro I, I did the math the other day i think i probably played for about three thousand voice lessons um while during that time during that time yeah, for all sorts of teachers, um, Broadway teachers, pop teachers, a lot of opera teachers, obviously, because it's an opera school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's really how I ended up doing what I do, um, at least on the teaching side of things, because mm -hmm. I started coaching and people would come to me for like opinions. And because I'd played so much, I'd mm -hmm. be good at troubleshooting, uh, had done my own kind of training as a singer, obviously, um, in a in a classical way, but was kind of learning through doing all of these hours with other teachers that um, how, how like different values worked and different techniques worked for different genres. Sure. And, and really also how different like those genres work kind of industry wise, because they all have their own way of progressing through the careers. So, um, uh, so that's, that's kind of how I ended up coaching. During the journey that you just described. Yeah. How important was networking? How important was how important was was who you knew as you went through that process? Uh, fairly critical for a lot of it, um, not entirely, but for a lot of it. So I I'll tell you a fun story. Um, so after I graduated from Cambridge, um, I actually was awarded what was called the Isaac Newton Scholarship, uh, which was based on my results from my undergrad. And it required me to stay and do a master's at Cambridge. And so I started that master's and did four days of it. <clears throat> um, and couldn't really 
cope with it anymore I'd sort of like I've done my years in the library now and I really do want to be out playing now and I kind mm-hmm. of feel like I've paid my dues and I know as much about music theory as anyone could ever hope to know so I was like I really can't do this anymore I've had enough um, and it was kind of misguided that I'd taken it probably um and so I knew from my time at the junior academy very well the principal of the school of junior uh, of the entire Royal Academy. Mm-hmm. So there was a relatively panicked phone call in September, and I said I've made a terrible mistake here. I really don't want to do this, and I'd really like to be playing. And he told me I could start on Monday. Uh, so that's how I ended up going to the academy. I never auditioned. I knew the principal, and I knew the head of my department, um, and I'd worked with them, and they knew my playing, obviously, and. Uh, so that was very much a kind of personal relationship thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I see a lot with, um, well, firstly, like on a kind of more theoretical basis about networking, let's put it this way. Let's say I'm a, a violinist and I've been asked to go on a tour for three months um, and I need to find a pianist to appear in recital with me for 40 concerts. There's a lot of people who can do the job, but I would want to be with the person who, after it, I want to go and sit in the hotel bar with and have a drink with, and I want to sit with them on the aeroplane, and I want to have another time with them. Uh, and that is so unbelievably important, and that's what I see, like, a lot of the time people who do well and people who don't do well is because people want to spend time with them, or, you know, and it could be... I I know people who are conductors and they will deliberately hire a, a, a vocal soloist in front of the symphony orchestra who is not the best vocal soloist they know, but they know that they'll be there and they know that they won't do it wrong. And whereas the person who might do it wrong could do an unbelievable performance and then not turn up for three weeks. So um, you, it's, it's not so much like in a cynical way, networking is really important because I feel like people very quickly say, oh, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not about how good you are it's, or, you know, this person has networked their way. So it's, as, at the end of the day, the industry is created by human beings and people need, people need to have confidence in the people they're working with and they want to enjoy the time that they spend with them. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm quite selective about the people I teach and I almost never teach them based on how good they are. I teach them on, I, do I want to give an hour of my life to this person? Um, and that's my criteria because I can make anyone sound good, but I can't, I can't like get my head around if I don't like them or if they're rude to me or if the parents are rude to me, I, I sort of don't really need that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I come from, from networking. The other thing that's really important about networking is that when you audition for something, there are people who that's the first time the panel's ever heard them. And there are people who the panel heard them a year ago and they know how much they've grown in that year. Um, Or it's just kind of inevitable. They know the backstory of that person. So you could have two people apply to Juilliard and they're both fantastic, both equally deserving of the place. But one of them has been studying privately with that teacher from Juilliard for the last year. And Mm -hmm. that teacher knows how they will cope in the course that teacher knows that a year ago they were nothing like they are now. Um, and so it's like putting your, it's like putting your, um, like your assets into stocks in a way. It's, it's so much about um, your confidence in that person and how likely they are to kind of deliver a return on, on your investment. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's not, it's not that you can't be, it, it's not that you can sort of play anything and network your way through it. You have to be able to do the job. But once you get over a certain level, it's uh, th- there's a lot more to that story, you know. Um, as we all know, there are people on Broadway who we can't believe that they got there, um, and um, some people who never got there who ought to have done. And mm-hmm. there's always reasons for that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I agree totally with all of that. Yeah. yeah. And it's how you are in the room, you know, it's how you are when you network, there's, there's ways of doing it that are very specific and, you know, that are, you have to be yourself and you have to be real and exactly what you said about showing up and doing the work and, and being prepared, all of those things are a huge factor in how people move through the industry in my space, the Broadway space, the film and TV space. 
it definitely is a big, big part of that. Absolutely. Huge, huge. I, I, I had a student, uh, th and this is no, no word of a lie. The re so she was a, an extra in a film, and the reason that she gained equity was because she was the only one out of the children who um, who went to the dressing rooms and folded up all her clothes and put them back on the hangers. And there you said, go. We like you, we want we want to work with you, um, mm -hmm. and and that that is literally how she got her foot in the door was because all of those people talked to each other. The makeup artists talk to the director. They all, you know, it's not just like how you are on the stage. It's how people want to spend time with you. And yes. That's, that's, that's how yeah, I have similar stories. I have a client who was in his second year um, at university for musical theater, and he wanted to get some experience in film and TV. So he ended up doing some um, background work, which I don't suggest that people do because I don't want them um, pigeonholed. But he did some background work on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I told him how he needed to be on set. And I gave him all of these you know, just basic concepts of, you know, keeping your eye on the director, staying with the director in regard to whatever instructions he is being, you know, he's given, getting to your place by moving quickly and not, you know, sauntering. Don't, don't be talking to the person next to you and be the last person to stop that conversation when they try to address the group. Like all of those basic things that I learned as a young child that not everyone learns these days as, as a young person. Um, and he ended up immediately getting upgraded to featured extra and then ended up being called back four times on that show and kept getting upgraded to like an under five, like it kept happening for him. And it helped him to actually get an agent at the end of the game. And he's working professionally now and doing very well, but that's all part of it too, you know? So I think we're, we're all on that same page. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I don't think that everybody really realizes that there are, and there are people, I have stories about people who, you know, did the out of town of a Broadway show. And then because of the way their attitude, because of their attitude and their behavior, they, during rehearsals, they didn't get rehired mm -hmm. and they didn't know why. And yeah. that's all exactly what you're saying. They people want to work with kind, appropriate, hardworking people who are going to be fun to be with, and who are going to be goal oriented, you know, toward the same goal that the you know the project, um, you know, specific to the project. Yeah, and and just like that last reiteration, a lot of it is about trust as well. Uh, it's incredibly important, um, and if if that person who's doing the job kind of gives off the aura that they know exactly what they're doing um it it makes everybody in the room feel at ease you know there <laughs> there are some directors who uh, have fantastic ideas but don't have like that kind of confidence around them or whatever to kind of make everybody uh go with their ideas and and um i found that in choral settings too and the the people who i've seen from who were in my year at cambridge um who wanted to be choral conductors and are now conducting things like the BBC singers and are at the proms. And, and it's always because everybody in the choir believed that they knew what they were doing. Um, uh, and they kind of instilled your trust in them. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. I think, I think that's part of networking too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now, yeah. You have, you actually have a number of different things you're doing. I don't know which one to pivot to first. Let's, okay, let's talk about your, um, your vocal career as a, as a performer, as a singer. Um, you have an amazing voice that has been, there have been a number of very famous publications and people who have been quoted to have said some pretty wonderful things about your vocal prowess. So um, how did you end up landing in that space? Where are you now? What's the plan for the future in regard to the vocal? Let's go into that. Somewhat complicated. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been through a lot of guises. Um, so uh, as we talked about, the um, my training was as a choral singer and, and then sort of alongside that as an, an opera singer. I was very lucky that I had an amazing teacher from the Guildhall School of Music, who I worked with privately. Um, and so I had most most of my performing career at that time was as a pianist. Um, that I had a, performed in some operas, but never really had the interest in kind of 
being in opera and, and, and kind of dressing up and all of that kind of stuff. It's also the reason I've never tried to go onto Broadway. I don't think it would suit me. Um, cause I like, I, I don't like the, like the things that kind of take my attention away from the music in a way. Um, and, uh, so I had this career as a pianist and then uh, alongside it was training as a classical singer. Um, and, and that was kind of how it was for many years. I, and as a classical singer, I'd performed on a number of recordings. Um, I think one of the quotes that you're referring to is from the LA Times, um, Los Angeles Times. So that was for an album I did with a choir, um, a Christmas album, basically. And they brought me in to record the, the solo line for an arrangement of In the Bleak Midwinter. So very, very cool, very classical. Um, and did a lot of stuff like that. And I did a lot, a lot of session singing. So I got into the kind of Abbey Road crowd. Um, so, uh, uh, so Abbey Road, as you'll know, is a very, very famous recording studio in North London. In, and um, it's also where most Hollywood films have their soundtracks recorded. Just FYI. And the Interesting. Reason, yeah. The reason for that is kind of surrounding um, how royalties work in the UK. So I did a lot of um, work with a group called London Voices and they did um, all sorts of films from the Harry Potter films, Lord of the Rings films, uh, Kung Fu Panda, Fantastic Beasts, um, all sorts of whiz. And then we would do like um, what were called library sessions where you would you would be given like a folder of music, would sing through the whole thing and it would be things like Magical Woods number one, Magical Woods number two. And you just, you'd have a clip track in your ear and you would sing oohs and ahs uh, as were written on the sheet all sight read. So I kind of got into that space as well, was doing that. This was all while I was a postgrad student at the academy um, in, in piano. And then Juilliard happened and that was mostly as a, a kind of coach and a pianist. Um, and I knew that I really wanted to explore a more contemporary commercial, CCM, contemporary commercial music yeah. side in my voice. and. That was something that um, I hadn't learned because my training had been so classical. So I actually enlisted the help of my own teachers, three of them, amazing, um, who were coaching for The Voice, the UK version of The Voice. Um, and so kind of made a project of learning how to sound like pop singer. And um, that's been my project for the last like two or three years, basically has been, well, it started as a covers, project so i took well-known songs and completely rewrote them and teamed up with a producer and we made these kind of symphonic uh symphonic or cinematic reimaginations of things like chasing cars and bridge over troubled water and we've just written a huge version of oh holy night which is about 11 minutes long um and for for about 90 piece orchestra um and which we just recorded in cheltenham um and that's been like in the performance side that's kind of how i've been focusing myself um kind of stepped out of the p piano playing career that was a deliberate thing that happened at the beginning of covid because before covid most of my income and most of my diary was filled with playing concerts for opera singers in europe and in america almost every week between the two continents and when all of that kind of got cancelled I realized that I wasn't missing it as much as my friends were. And they went through this phase of like doing, you know, Facebook live concerts and all this. And I was just like, I just don't, I, for some reason, I'm not feeling the need to be doing that. I'm kind of enjoying not playing. Um, so I deliberately took, took a step back from that career, which had been great. There'd been Carnegie halls and Lincoln centers and the BBC proms and all sorts of things. And, um, and that kind of run its course. Um, so as I said, now I'm writing this kind of much more contemporary stuff, which I record either here or at a studio up the road. Um, and we're just moving into that being um, put into sync libraries. So I um, um, made arrangements with two sync firms um, or publishing firms. Um, so those things will be used in um, like movies and TV series that are coming out and that kind of stuff. So. I love doing the covers. It's really, really good fun. And it's like kind of comes in a nice full circle really because it takes everything that I learned at Cambridge and everything I learned as a pianist and everything I learned as a classical musician and then as a pop musician and it kind of makes this weird fusion that somehow works of all of these different 
elements coming together. And then more recently have started doing um, some original material. Um, and I wouldn't pretend that I was a really good original songwriter. So I have people who I'm co-writing with. None of that's yet been released. Um, but a lot of the other stuff has. It's under the name Cameron Owen rather than Cameron Richardson on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. It's under Cameron Owen. Um, and I sort of deliberately kept those two things separate. So the teaching is done under my full name and then the performance stuff is done under a different name. Um, and yeah, that was kind of a, a, a conscious thing. I didn't want my students necessarily thinking this person's trying to make it as a performer or anything like that. Um, so that's kind of how it's how it's worked out is that yeah so so right now we're doing a lot of kind of synchronization really great that's really great that you got into the publishing side of it and got your music out there and for anybody listening definitely go and check out his music because it is very unusual and pretty awesome and it definitely is awe-inspiring not only the his vocals but the instrumentation and what he's done with the arrangements is just incredible and something that you've never heard before so look out world because everyone's gonna know cameron owen <laughs> they are just go and listen to it because it's just incredible it's incredible yeah i think that's what's important that um that parents realize that it is much more advantageous to work with teachers that can not only mentor, but can also help to connect to other, you know, other teachers and other persons who can help them to move forward with that, with their talent and to connect them to other opportunities. It's very, very important. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. A lot of the time people come in with quite specific questions and I quite happily say, I don't know, but I know people who do. And, mm -hmm. Same. Um, and, Same. Uh, yeah, I, I know what I'm good at, and I know <laughs> what I'm good at. And um, it's a it's a double-edged sword, really, because um, sometimes you can't you can't create careers for people who aren't ready for those careers to be created, you know, or or make introductions that are sort of inappropriate because you have um, like your own industry reputation to sort of maintain yes yes this is true that is part of it it doesn't happen all the time but when you when you need to and you and if you can yeah. it's definitely it definitely helps when when you have oh, kids wow. that are in that in that kind of talent space that top one percent that's the thing that's absolutely true and um it's one of the things that like having looked back on my own childhood is is like a little bit of a frustration not so much a frustration, but frustration on behalf of other people, because I know that I could walk into one of the schools in where I grew up and find people who were untapped, incredible talent. Um, I, it, like statistically, that is just highly likely mm -hmm. um, who will never in their whole life have someone who says you should be doing this. And even if they did, and they've been studying with their teacher in their little town for 15 years, were never in a position where anything could come of it. Um, and all of these stories of, you know, so-and-so was discovered on YouTube, Justin Bieber was discovered on YouTube, Ariana Grande was discovered, on, it, they're simply untrue. And they make very interesting kind of headlines and clickbait and that kind of stuff. But yes. in all of those situations, those people had Ne they, those people had structures put together with lawyers and publishers and everything. Else. It was all there so that when someone put a candle to the, uh, you know, the newspaper or whatever, and it all exploded, it was all like in a place for that to happen. Yes. And that's, that's one of like my biggest frustrations is um, people, people who are um, hugely gifted and not in the right environment for their gift to do anything. Um, and sometimes that's money. More often it's about geography um, and where they live. So, you know, if you're born in New York in L or in L.A., the pathway for you to be go to the right teachers is relatively straightforward. If you live in Iowa, it's much harder. Um, and that's sort of why I set up the school that I have now, um, which is a, a, a vocal school where I I didn't really have time to take more students on so I hired other teachers and we now have 2,000 students, 2,100 and something students when I last looked. 
um, was because the internet sort of changed that and is changing that. And, um, you know, while there are some agencies who will only look at you if you live in the tri-state area or whatever, um, th there, there's now like the, the option of you having an incredible world-class teacher, even if you live 6,000 miles away from them. So, um, yeah, so as I said, the school was something that largely was born out of demand. Um, it became formalized during COVID when I went into a, a, a business partnership with a, a friend of mine from Cambridge. It's called thevocalcoaches.com, thevocalcoaches.com. And it essentially was like um, uh, a place where people could come in with their ambitions and we would give them a route to kind of realize them. Um, and so I hired uh, a teach one, one the first of the first people at the teachers I hired one of them was one of the coaches for the voice and she teaches some very 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 high profile pop singers pop and R&B singers and she specifically teaches pop and R&B singers and then I have I hired uh, a, a so West End so like London's version of Broadway um, I hired a girl who had been in Wicked Phantom and Les Miserables, all three of them. And her husband was Miss Trunchbull in Matilda, also on the West End. Um, and I hired her. And she was also teaching at um, one of the top performing arts schools in the UK. Uh, and so she took all the people who came who said they wanted to sing musical theatre. And then I hired another friend who had been to the Guildhall School of Music for the people who wanted to sing opera. And it was basically like, you know, when you're at school and you're given the school voice teacher, you're kind of given the school voice teacher and you, you, you don't, you, you can't go in there and say, Oh, I want to be an R and B singer when that person's education has been in church choir. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, that was one of the things that it kind of sought to address was um, pe people being put on that right pathway from, from very young. So after that, we did get quite a few young students. So I hired a friend, who was on the faculty of the National Youth Choir. And she she was like an expert in teaching early early years voices. Incredibly good, way better than I could ever be at it. And every person who is on that faculty has like their own unique thing that they bring. And so now people, we, we get quite a, quite a lot of applications every day. And one of my jobs is to sift through those applications and listen to all of their recordings. And um, sometimes I'll meet with them and sometimes I don't need to. I know who they should go to. Um, and uh, they get they get put with the person who's actually appropriate for what they want to do. Um, and that wasn't available to me um, and hadn't been available to a lot of people. So I think it's quite a it's quite a good um, a good little setup, really. Yeah, I think I think that's incredible and and fantastic that you were able to well you have you have clients, you have students from all over the world now. Yeah, so uh, around about 45 countries um and um we actually won the international trade award at um the uh, Northern Business Awards last year. Um for for that reason, um yeah, it's headquartered in London. Some of our teachers live in America, some live in the UK. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of students from all over the world um, and some people who are extremely successful, which has been very, very nice. Um, mm -hmm. And from the other side of it as well, it, it helped during COVID a lot of people who, uh, teachers who needed to pay rent and their performances had been cancelled and the West End shut down and all of that. Kind mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not showed any signs that, that it was kind of a, a beneficiary of COVID in a way it actually continues to grow exponentially all the time. And yeah. The biggest challenge I have now is finding teachers who kind of fit what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are you looking, are you presently looking to add more teachers to the staff? Always. Mm -hmm. But they have to, they have to, um, I, I always have in my head what I'm looking for from the person I'm going to add because it's always based on if someone comes in and or several people come in and we the need yeah so mm -hmm. we get people we get people writing almost every day asking to teach for us and as of yet we haven't um, agreed to do that for anybody it's always been mm -hmm. either people who I knew originally or recommendations so mm -hmm. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, there I go. There you go. It's, I, I was going to say it. It sounds like it's all it's people that, you know, and it's your friends and people you trust and people who are going to show up and people who work just all the things that we mentioned earlier, really. And it, it, it's people whose teaching I know and who have proven track records with really good students. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so it wasn't just that, you know, for example, ex teacher had been in those shows, but it was that she'd also had a number of students who had also then successfully landed Western. Of course, of course. So how, so if someone um, wants to connect to the school, um, what is that process? Can you kind of give us a little bit of insight there so that they know where to go and what their, their expectation is? Yeah, it's, it's really straightforward, really. So it's uh, uh, thevocalcoaches.com. That's all it is. And um, there is a form at the top of the page called Learn With Us. And so you click on that and it will just ask you for um, a little bit of information. And then there's a box for you to put in um, recordings of yourself and what your past experience has been or anything that you feel I ought to know um, in order to kind of pair you with the, the right teacher for what you're looking for. Um, so it's really, really straightforward. It, you don't you don't pay to apply or anything like that. It's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's. Oh, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good, good, good. So Cameron, so we're we're running out of time here a little bit, but I wanted to see if you have any advice for someone who maybe is a little bit older and maybe a little bit late to the table, starting to pursue a career in the arts, whether that be as a musician. Um, and of course, this would be on a professional level um, or, you know, a singer, a any type of performer. Do you have any advice for someone who is maybe starting out at 18, 19, 20, or they've just arrived in London and they want to, you know, be auditioning for shows on the West End or they just arrived to New York and they want to be auditioning for Broadway and they don't know what to do next? Any advice? Yeah, so uh, lots of specific scenarios there. Um, New York, I always send them to you um, because you know that side of the industry more than I do. Uh, and that's what we were saying earlier. I know what I know, and then I know other people who know what I don't know. Sure. Um, and the same thing for London. So I I personally have a lot more American students than British students. Um, and the people who want to go into the West End specifically would more than likely end up with one of my associate teachers for that reason. Um, in terms of like most generic, the most generic, okay, so it depends on what what kind of section of the performing arts you want to be in. Um, but the most important thing, if you were going to be working in a kind of contemporary commercial space, not so much necessarily on Broadway is, but like if you wanted to become a recording artist, for example, mm -hmm. is to know who your audience is. And that audience can be a thousand people or a hundred thousand people but i would rather see an audience of a thousand people who will turn up to every show and buy your t-shirts than a hundred thousand people who won't even like your instagram post or something like that and the reason for that again is about um record labels will look at you as a potential investment and um they kind of have to know that they will get a return on that investment so um you have so by far the most important thing you can possibly 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 do is cultivate an audience um, and there's many ways of doing it. It can be that you go and do every open mic night in a pub up and down the country, or um, more commonly now is, well, I always think of it as virtual touring, but basically um, running Instagram adverts or YouTube adverts. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, it's not something you should do on your own. You should do it with an expert in it. Um, yes, absolutely. I agree there. Yeah, totally. And, mm -hmm. and, and, just measure your cost per conversion so you say so for x number of pounds that i spent on this advert on instagram that turned into x number of spotify subscribers or that kind of thing and cultivating that audience so that when you march into an a and r office or you send their disc off more than them listening to the music they say okay here's his fan base mm -hmm. um, that, that's by a long way the most important thing industry-wise um in terms of like musically that's obviously very highly specific uh, to whatever individual um, problems present. So uh, I don't know how, how kind of helpful I could be with some, 
Do you have specific scenarios in mind? So that's like someone wants to become a pop singer. Or... It's great because it's so true. I mean, I've got my own clients too, as you know, with the music industry. And that's the first thing you need to determine who, who your market is. Who's your market demographic? You got to figure it out. Yeah, that's a big, big part of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I do have quite a quite a lot of young adults who are in college or they're, they've just graduated and they just don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do next. They don't know um, how to find their way, you know, and they, and in their mind, they want to be a Broadway performer. They want to be a pop singer. So obviously that's great advice that you just gave. And so, you know, I guess it's all about, for me, I, I think that it's all about, um, getting with the right instructors, getting, getting connected to the right network. Um, you know, being with the people who do what you want to do, like connecting to them, you know, like moving to New York and being in that space and being able to, as you said earlier, you know, get coffee with friends that you met at an audition the day before, like you, you have to find your way. You have to put in the effort. No one's going to, walk up to you on the street and say, come in here and audition for a lead in, you know, the next Broadway show. You have to learn how the industry works and, and what the processes are. And there's not a lot of that information isn't out there unless you live in that space or you've been born into that space. So how do you break that bubble? You know, how do you, how do you find your way? So I just thought maybe you had some advice for, you know, someone in that situation having your assets lined up and and a very strong uh, reel that uh, that is professionally recorded and you know there are certain agencies that will accept submissions and a lot that won't um and and creating those lists and like tar targeting them in a kind of um systematic way uh and working through them um is very important um we've done that quite a lot you know we've shared clients who have done that and come out yeah. with an agent and who are auditioning um, the other nice thing about New York and London is that um, people take elevators and they don't in L.A. Uh, you, dri you drive to the sad little shed where you do your recording and then you drive away again. And um, whereas in, in London, you will get on the tube together. I mean, yesterday. No, sorry. It wasn't yesterday. Last week, um, I was oddly enough presenting an award um, at the um, Music Producers Guild Awards, which was in London. And... Um, some really awesome people who were also presenting, like Peter Gabriel, who I've loved. Oh, I love him. But what actually happened was I was talking with my manager on the, on the um, escalator up from the underground, from the tube, and someone behind was like, are you going to the Music Guild Awards? And it's like, yes, we are. And so in the 10 minutes that took us to walk from the station to the venue, I knew all about this guy. He knew all about me. We'd swap business cards, and that was just completely serendipitous. If I'd have driven there and walked straight in and done my job... Yep then yeah. you would never have any of that kind of human interaction. Mm -hmm. And it was the same when we came out, you know, we went back onto the tube and the person next to me on the couch, you've just been at the producer guild award, haven't you? You know? Um, yeah. And uh, I can't, yeah, that's, you can't really do that on email or on mm -hmm. uh, Zoom, unfortunately. You can get, yeah. you can get the information and you can get fantastic teaching, but um yeah, it, it, there's something about kind of being being there, which is is very scary. You know, if you if you come out of college and you don't have a job and um, you've got to kind of get the funds together to uh, <laughs> to kind of pay rent in New York and live in New York and pay the bills in New York, that's it's, it's very bewildering. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very scary when you look at how many colleges are essentially maybe without even putting it into words are promising careers on Broadway. Yes. Uh, when they're simply that they're, they're just a way more people than there are jobs. Um, mm. And the, the kind of unique thing about musical theater careers is there's only really two cities in the world where you can create a career doing it, which is London and New York. And the rest of it is touring almost all of it, not entirely, but mostly, I mean, Japan has a nice scene and everything else, but, um, uh, so it's probably the the most insanely com competitive market you could throw yourself into, and you have to just be very systematic about it, and very um, detached is the wrong word, but somewhat bulletproof. Um, and uh, yeah, it it 
it's very, very tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have a thick skin and you have to be very committed and very driven and, and very laser focused. And it's funny, your story, I've told so many other people that same story. I tell lots of my clients, you know, you exactly what you just said. L.A., you drive up, you get out of the car, you go into the audition, you come out. There's no, you know, human interaction. There's not the riding in the elevator and then walking, you know, up the street to get to your, you know, to get to the subway or or wherever you're going, where you have those conversations. That story is is perfect. It's exactly how you connect. It is. And you'll walk past the cafe and think, let's just get a quick coffee or, you know, have you got time for a coffee? Yeah, I've got half an hour. You know, that kind of thing. Yes. That, that sort of it's why I've never really wanted to move to LA um, but it's all kind of part of being human um, mm -hmm. in a it's tricky and, and the other thing that's really hard is that you know um, a, a friend of mine for example was Christine Dye in Phantom on the West End the way that uh, the way that it all kind of panned out was they decided to refurbish the theatre during COVID and then essentially made everybody reapply for their jobs, which was uh, very controversial. Like that's essentially the biggest job in the West End. It's the biggest soprano role in the West End. Is of course Christine Dye on Phantom, which sadly is is no longer on on Broadway. And you can go from that to being like the next same person doing the auditions again the next week. And, um, you know, it's it's not always that you're like at the top and therefore you're going to plateau there. It's it, there's a huge number of ups and downs. Like uh, if, if security is something you crave, it's it's a it's a difficult situation to live in because um, mm -hmm. you know, people very easily start thinking that that's a reflection on their worth or their ability or um, and, and sometimes it's none of those things. Yeah. And you also have to be kind of a CEO of your own company in a way, you know, you have to be the one driving that bus and you have to be the one finding out and learning and, you know, putting the work in beyond just the art. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a thing. This has been great. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yes. So much, so much wonderful information. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. But um, yeah, thank you so much. Hey, we're, I, I'm looking forward to more music from you. There's some coming very soon. If you have a, a child, a teen, a young adult, an adult for that matter, who is looking for high, high level training vocally, reach out to, to Cameron and his company because they've done amazing things. Um, he has completely changed the trajectory of so many of my clients' careers. So thank you for that, Cameron. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You have done some amazing work, amazing work. Congratulations for accomplishing so much in such a short amount of time. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with Cameron and continue to follow his professional journey, follow him on Instagram at Cameron O. Richardson and join me Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern. Need more information? Visit lbctalent.com and follow me on socials at Lisa Solak underscore lbctalent. By sharing our stories, we can help other talented individuals land the career of their dreams. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe below.